At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For almost a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now, on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. And we get to hear from you. This week, I'm talking with Tony Tipton Martin, the award-winning historian and author of The Jemima Code and Jubilee, both drawn from her collection of more than 400 historic African-American cookbooks. You might remember that we shared Tony's Louisiana barbecued shrimp from Jubilee last year in Genius Recipes which is just one extraordinarily delicious example of the work that Tony has spent decades of her career on, researching the full spectrum of African-American cooking, finding the unsung recipes and techniques that often fall outside of the well-known soul food canon, and sharing their stories with dignity and respect. Tony first fell in love with that genius shrimp, which is not actually barbecued, but quickly simmered in a buttery, spicy Creole pan sauce on her family vacations on the Gulf Coast of Texas. She then compared and tested recipes across the cookbooks in her collection as she worked on Jubilee, with her favorite version ultimately based on one from the model, chef, and restaurateur, B. Smith, who wrote three cookbooks, built a restaurant empire, and sadly passed away not long after we first featured the recipe that she had inspired. Today, Tony is here to talk about how her work continues, with the recent announcement of her winning the Julia Child Award, given each year since 2015 to someone who has made a profound and significant difference in the way that America cooks, eats, and drinks. And with Juneteenth, the holiday honoring the end of slavery in the United States coming up, is an especially poignant moment to reflect on all of the good that Tony has done and will continue to do, while also acknowledging that this is only the latest development in a long career of, as she puts it, using real role models to inspire the next generation. At the end of the episode, we'll hear more from our listeners about how they're planning to celebrate Juneteenth this year. But for now, let's hear more from Tony. Just for any listeners who aren't familiar with the recipe yet, can you share why the Louisiana barbecue shrimp from Jubilee is one of your favorites from the book and the story behind finding and developing it for the version you shared in Jubilee? It is very simple and it's delicious. It's an adaptation. So it helps us understand the idea that you can take a recipe and make it your own um, because it's a version of basically, you know, just having a really great garlic shrimp or a scampi recipe, but in Louisiana, they do different things to make the sauce, the pan sauce. And so there are even recipes um, that call for beer. Mm -hmm. But this recipe takes advantage of the African-American penchant for spicy food. And so it's really flavorful, full of garlic. Mm -hmm. And um, it's got this incredible fire, you know, that, that sneaks up on you. But you can adjust that and people don't have to make it as hot as I make it or even as the other chefs did. 
before me. And then, of course, the other dimension that I really like is in terms of the work that I do and the call to recognizing the professional qualities of African-American cooking. In that regard, what I really love is that there's technique involved in making this dish. And so while it's very simple and it can look like you're just sauteing shrimp, the way of making a silky French-styled sauce that culturally we might have just called gravy and really diminished the technique associated with making making the dish, Mm -hmm. this recipe really amplifies that. It helps you understand making a reduction sauce, the classic reduction sauce, and this idea of swirling the butter into the dish to help the liquids emulsify. Um, all of that just shows the the knowledge um, for me. So so the recipe hits all kinds of notes. It shows professionalism. It's delicious. Um, and my family loves it. On Christmas, New Year's Eve, we often make it and stand around the stove dipping French bread into the cast iron skillet before we can even get it into the bowls. So it's a favorite for us, too. Mm-hmm. I was first drawn to it first just by reading your your story in Jubilee and the history and the prose in your story were so beautiful. But then when I made it, I was just stunned at how quickly you could get so much flavor. It's like no more than 10 minutes of cooking, but because you've gathered all these different spices and seasonings, they kind of just instantly formed this incredible sort of magical sauce for shrimp. Yeah. And a lot of times I think about... Um, fish and shellfish um, in terms of their delicacy and not wanting to overpower them Mm -hmm. with heavy seasoning. Mm -hmm. So those that are coming to this dish for the first time might be surprised and think that this is going Mm -hmm. to um, just overtake the shrimp and and not be complimentary, but that's not true. Mm -hmm. There's independent flavors there, but they're also the the collective is a, is makes a wonderful dish. And I think that, Again, is what is so attractive to me about this particular recipe is um, it isn't that it's so much a surprise in the African-American community or maybe even in the food world, this style of cooking. What is, a, what is a surprise is to see them both coexist in the same place, right? So we know about scampi and we know about reduction sauces and we know about using Burmani, you know, to thicken a sauce and not have to make a traditional grue type gravy. But we don't think about that in association with African-American food. Mm -hmm. And I think that is why Jubilee has had the staying power, the surprise wow factors that it's having for people is just because it's so Mm eye-opening about factors that are right in front of our eyes. (laughs) Could you just talk a little bit more about that, about your process of working on the Jemima Code and Jubilee and the things that you were trying to show in working on those books and also maybe some things that you discovered yourself along the way? Yeah, I started the Jemima Code and Jubilee project um, as a self-education project um, and maybe even as an expression of self-care, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and this week, earning the Julia Child Award is particularly reflective of that experience because I've been at this for a really long time, mm-hmm. um, trying to draw attention to a different side of African-American food culture, trying to find my own way in the food industry and being marginalized or rejected because my 
messaging wasn't the same as everybody else's messaging. And that isn't to say that the message that's out there about soul food, about industrious cooking, about persevering and food being a reflection of our creativity and making do with less. And, you know, that whole idea of survival cooking is really an important aspect of African-American food ways, one that should not be minimized at all. But with any swinging of the pendulum, you have to swing all the way to the other end. And at the other end, there's the food of the culture that I had more experience with, which was as a girl brought up in the West um, on the beach in Southern California, my Black experience wasn't any less Black than anybody else's. It just didn't, um, it wasn't limited to the foods of the South and the boundaries of the South and this poverty survival message. I wanted to tell a broader story. And um, I quickly realized from the obstacles that I encountered that if I was going to tell this story, I was going to really have to rely on my journalism skills to produce an evidence-based message. It's going to require sourcing and citations in a way that perhaps no other food culture story, you know, needed to be legitimized. And so um, I went over and above trying to make those, find that proof. And the cookbooks were what provided it for me. So I wound up with a collection of now over, well over 400 Black cookbooks that date back to 1827. Um, and from those, I was able to identify a style of cooking associated with affluence and people who worked in the food profession. And that food is also African-American and it is theirs. And I've seen that you have called yourself a reluctant collector. Do you still feel that way? And and why is that so? I might even be more reluctant now because now I understand the value of these books and I'm concerned about their care. So people have started sending me books, gifting me with books uh, because they know that I'm a good caretaker for them. I, I love them and I want them to all be together, uh, almost like a family um, but my concern is that I don't have the facility to properly store them, and I want them to be archived in a way that they are preserved for the longest time. A couple of them are pretty fragile. The paper is starting to really give, so um, I have them in, stored in a safe place. I don't want them, you know, around because of their value. So all of that makes is making me a little bit more nervous about them the more that I'm talking about them and the more that my storytelling about them is driving prices up for them at auction. For example, the Abby Fisher book from 1881, when I first started looking for it about 15 years ago, it sold for $3,000. The last time it was sold about a year and a half ago, it sold for 15000 so it's exceedingly rare, and many of those early year books are. So I, um, I'm still a little bit of a reluctant collector. I became a collector, as I said, in pursuit of real voices, real people who could tell a different story. I didn't know they were going to have a different story to tell until I actually had all of the books in front of me. 
I was visiting the public library trying to find resources to find these voices that I was looking for. So I would research old photos. I listened to tapes of the slave narratives. And I started looking for cookbooks, but they were um, archived in special collections all around the country. One book would be, you know, in D.C. and another one would be in Birmingham, you know, so I couldn't access them. So what really started as an effort to just see them in person turned into a collecting project. I understand the the weight and the responsibility of of caring for so many important and historic and rare or almost unique books at this time, but I I can't imagine them in in better hands for now until you find a place to archive them. Yeah, thank you. That is um, very kind. And I think a lot of people have felt that way um, because I've been so public in my pursuit of them. Uh, When I was looking for the Abby Fisher book, I jokingly went on social media and said that this book was was going to be available at auction and that I was digging around in my old purses and my husband's pants pockets looking for quarters, you know, and pennies so that I could go to the auction. And I was just making a social media post for heaven's sakes. <laughs> and um, the next thing I know, my followers and friends were pushing me to start a GoFundMe. And as a journalist, I just felt like that was such a kind of icky thing to do that people who at that time, especially GoFundMe was very special. People had really important family and personal needs there. And it felt um, kind of carpetbagger-like for me to go on there looking for money for this book. Um, But my followers insisted. (laughs) And so I did it. And we raised $10,000 in 10 days. Wow. Um, And I was able to go into auction with it. So it's really not, I mean, it is a personal collection, but it is a community collection as well. And you're the the keeper of it for now. That's really sweet. I, you know, I think that is true because people are sending me things now, mm-hmm. books that I would never have access to. Like I wouldn't be able to get community, small community books or church cookbooks, but now people are sending me those things. So I just got a note following the announcement about the Julia Award from somebody that normally is a book dealer and sells these things, but she's going to send me a book about Maryland, and hopefully it'll become a feature in the new TV show that we're planning. Would you mind sharing what that TV show will be? We are in the midst of prepping a television show that will be a combination travel log and cooking show that is also centered in the library and the collection. And so we will explore some of my favorite books. It'll give viewers a chance to see inside of them in ways that they haven't been able to see them, just in the way that I couldn't see them. You know, I want people to be able to have that same, the same experience that mm-hmm. I did in falling in love with these authors wow. and their messages and the values that they left behind. So we will travel to regions according to the books in the Jemima Code and talk to people there and talk about the people there and cook and eat with the people there. Great. So that'll come out in the fall. Is that right? That is probably a year away. Okay. uh, Because we haven't started filming for that yet. Okay. Right. 
And in the meantime, one of the things that has changed at Cook's Country was similar to the first change that I made when I discovered the books of the Jemima Code, and that was to um, replace one of the recipes um, with a stunning portrait of a cook. So the back page of our magazine used to have a spectacularly photographed portrait of a dessert. And I mean, like, you know, our photographer, you know, he could make pudding look, you know, really <laughs> sexy and beautiful. And um, But he has the same eye for people. And we just didn't really have a space for that because of our dedication to recipe development. So mm. we hope that readers don't miss that one recipe and that we're giving them a lot more. And just seeing the beautiful smile of a person, a cook, who's behind the recipes we love, because that's what's important to me as well. Recipes do not make themselves, I've said before. There's always a cook there. And we have marginalized cooks of almost every kind. Women are part of that marginalized group. When we think about chefs, we often revert to thinking that means men. And so my work has just been designed to bring more equity and inclusion for initially for African-Americans, but now for other invisible cooks at Cook's Country, and then in my nonprofit work that will focus on women. Hey, it's Kristen. If you're enjoying this chat with Tony as much as I did, head over to the Genius Recipe Tapes and hit subscribe so you don't miss out on other conversations like this one. In the second half of the episode, Tony tells us about her plans for the $50,000 grant that she just received from the Julia Child Foundation. By your nonprofit work, do you mean the the same nonprofit that's going to be receiving the grant? That is um, my nonprofit. Um, in 2008, I founded a 501c3 nonprofit organization at about the time I was doing this collecting. And at the time, I envisioned the authors and a book like the Jemima Code as a workbook. Um, and the classes would be delivered in a historic house where women primarily could come together and cook together the way that we often do and um, share recipes and tell stories and help one another heal and grow. So I had a couple of opportunities to get my hands on historic houses in Austin, that Austin, Texas, that fell through. And in the meantime, while I was unable to achieve that part of the goal, the historic preservation part, I directed my mentor energy towards marginalized, underserved families. So the organization initially during the Obama years focused on children with a cooking school program that was held after school. Then it made a pivot and it focused on high school kids. And I took a group of high schoolers um, who had never left the city to New York and they cooked at the Beard House as part of an exhibit of the Jemima Code, and that was incredible uh, for them. We created a program called the Children's Picnic, which was a free uh, program to get kids and their families understanding how delicious healthy food could be, right? It might have meant just having some water um, with a sprig of lemon and some strawberries sliced in it to help them understand that you didn't have to drink those brightly colored red and blue drinks that are you know, bombarding them in their convenience store. And then finally, we reached the young adults through Soul Summit. And Soul Summit was an opportunity prior to internet 
Facebooking, social media networking for young up-and-coming food professionals to be in the presence of icons. And so I brought everybody who was anybody at the time in the food world into Austin so that young people could be in their presence and hear them deliver their speeches. Mm-hmm. So the new not the new um, vision for the nonprofit will be to do combine all of those efforts and direct them towards um, young women as food writers. Mm-hmm. Um, because I have um, endured a lot to achieve what I have. And I hope that um, a pool of highly acclaimed women writers will be able to provide the mentorship to the up-and-coming generation and help them navigate the system in ways that we didn't have help with. Mm. So it's a big ambition, but the Child Award and the connection to America's Test Kitchen tie all of my work together in a nice bow. It has seemed disparate, I think, to most people. You know, you learn about my book collection or you hear me talking about being a magazine editor, but this is the first time that um, I think people will get a chance to understand this has been a project with an end purpose all along. How would you frame that end purpose of all of your projects for our listeners? The end purpose is to use real role models to inspire the next generation so that they can be economically independent. But it's also designed to increase our tolerance of one another and break down stereotypes so that we can have healthier communities. And when I say healthy communities, I've intentionally chosen those words over the years, not only to mean healthy in your body or in your mind, but but healthy as a community. And how do we sustain our world and our neighborhoods and our human community? And that is by being less intolerant of one another and our differences. And so this long ago vision that I had that if we could stop seeing the Mammy character as the representation for all Black women, and we could begin to see each African-American woman as an individual with her own set of characteristics and values, then we might apply that same approach to every individual that we meet and not lump them into some biased, prejudiced category, and then save our communities. And that's been the vision all along, is using real people, not stereotypes, to save our humanity. That all makes so much sense. Yeah, you know, um, we're heading into the time period for Juneteenth, and um, this this is an expression of freedom. Um, my freedom, um, and everyone else's freedom. We were talking a few minutes ago about stereotypes and why the Jemima Code and, you know, all of that. The name Jubilee is about freedom, um, liberation. We are all free. When I say that in my work, I really do mean it. Um, and, and that is what Juneteenth is all about. It's in a celebration of a group of, of, a, of a people who were so significantly oppressed and unable to develop generational wealth um, and to benefit from the fruits of their labor and from their intellectual property. Um, And so if in some small way my work can restore that intellectual property, if entities that support me and what I'm trying to accomplish um, can, can do so as a 
type of reparations, mm-hmm. um, I have you know taken to calling some of the support I receive culinary reparations mm-hmm. um, because we can't give those people back their their lives, the resources that were taken from them, um, but we can give them back their dignity um, by attributing recipes to them that belong to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and getting a better understanding of what it was that they contributed um, to American society, uh, as I often say, besides the recipe for really great pancakes. <laughs> and now, here are some of our listeners to tell us how they'll be celebrating Juneteenth this year. Hi, this is Christina Ng from Berry Good Food Foundation out in sunny San Diego, California. And to honor Juneteenth this year, we are going to be hosting a Carolina Gold Rice and Sea Island Red Pea Cook-Off amongst our local food community. This includes chefs, up-and-coming culinary students, and some of our favorite food friends. And we're going to challenge everybody to show homage to the ingredients um, in a really fun, delicious way. We can't wait to get it on. Miko Temple here of MikoAndTheDish.com, and let's talk Juneteenth. I'm a big advocate of Juneteenth, and for the past two years, I have been bringing together Black content creators in a collaboration I like to call the Juneteenth Cookout, a virtual menu of recipes inspired by the African diaspora. It's one of the ways that we have been able to continue to celebrate Juneteenth in spite of the pandemic. On a personal note, I'm also planning to have a small celebration at home for Juneteenth. So my mom just moved in state, and so I get to celebrate Juneteenth with her, my stepdad, and a small group of friends by having a full Juneteenth spread equipped with red foods like hot links and chow chow, barbecued chicken, and of course, the cups will be filled with red drink. You can count on that. (laughs) I am just excited that this year I am able to have people with me as I celebrate a historic time in our history. Thanks for listening, and my thanks to Tony Tipton Martin, award-winning author of The Jemima Code and Jubilee, editor-in-chief of Cook's Country Magazine, and the recipient of the Julia Child Award this year. Our show is put together by Coral Lee with support from Emily Hanhan. If you have a genius recipe to share, especially from communities and cooks who have been historically overlooked, I would always love to hear from you at geniusatfood52.com. And if you like the Genius Recipe tapes, do take a sec to rate us, leave a review, and subscribe if you haven't already. All of it helps. Talk to you soon.